Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. We're going to keep going in Ephesians chapter 2 in our study we've been doing uh, beyond, talking about a God beyond our imagination, wants to do beyond what we could imagine. And so I'm going to pray for us, and if you've got a Bible, you can grab it in Ephesians chapter 2. Father, thank you uh, for the opportunity to be with you, um, that we get to gather in your name. Many of us are more grateful for that today uh, than we were a couple years ago, that we can gather in your name. And uh, Father, I thank you for those that are watching online. I pray that you would invade their homes and their hearts. I pray for those that have walked through this room. I pray that when they walk out of this room, they would love you more than they do right now. I pray if there's people that are lost, they would be found. I pray if there are people that are discouraged, you'd encourage them. I pray if there are people that are um, proud, you'd humble them. Uh, Father God, will you do what you're going to do? Do something beyond what I would even pray right now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, I told you Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, you may remember, if you've been with us through this series, a couple weeks ago I mentioned a pastor that I was listening to on a podcast. He was from the Middle East, and I was doing that at the time. It was just a small part of the message two weeks ago. I was trying to share with you some of the things that were happening, happening in Afghanistan, and uh, one of the stories I didn't share was probably my favorite story that he shared uh, was just his story of how he met his wife and became a pastor in the Middle East. Um, his voice was disguised on the podcast. They couldn't share his name. Uh, he couldn't say his exact location, but he said, I was born in the West and uh, grew up in the church, came to Christ when I was nine years old, uh, left the church at 16, uh, not because of something that happened in the church, but <clears throat> because of things that were not happening in the church. And when he was 23, he came back, uh, got a job at a church. He was working in the production department uh, of a large uh, church that was broadcasting around the world, uh, different television stations, and met his wife on a trip with the pastor to the Middle East. His wife was born in the Middle East, uh, started following Islam when she was three, started wearing a burqa when she was five, started reading the Koran when she was nine. By the time she was 13, she had memorized the Koran, and so she was very zealous. Uh, she went to a, a woman's school. Uh, a fundamentalist Islamic school, and at 17 became an evangelist for Islam in their country and to women. And a few years into that, uh, she realized no matter what she did, she couldn't get close with God. And so she was very empty inside and depressed, and she tried to take her own life. Her family, who loved her, uh, did not want her to do that, but uh, they live in a different culture than we do. It's an honor and shame culture, and so you honor your parents, um, and it's a shame to the whole family. You don't ever want to bring uh, shame to the name of the family if you do things dishonorable outside the home. She threatened the family and said, if you don't let me take my own life in my own home, I will do it in the streets. And so the family agreed, we will let you take your life in your home. At the time, the mom had MS, and she, her legs were not working. She couldn't walk. Um, her eyes were drooping. She was drooling. And so the daughter said to her mom, you're going to die of MS, and I want to die. Why don't we do it together? And they made a suicide pact. And so one night, they, asked, they had to leave and kick the sister out of the house, and they were going to take some sleeping pills and turn the natural gas on and not ever wake up was their plan. Uh, before they turned the gas on and took the pills, they turned a program on, and on the program, a pastor came on, and he said, brothers and sisters, why do some of you want to take your lives tonight? Jesus wants to change your life. The mom, being zealous, said, I'm going to call those infidels, those Christians, I'm going to call those infidels and convince them that Jesus is dead. And then she thought, then when I stand before God, I can stand before Him in perfection because of what I did for Him. And she calls. Twenty minutes later, she had trusted Christ as her Savior. Yeah, for sure. You can get Lord hand for that. We can always get… All of heaven rejoices when someone trusts Christ, so you can always… I'll pause for that. Um, so then um, she said to her daughter, I would like you to talk to this pastor. The daughter said, no way. She said, I can't believe that on the night of our death, you'd commit this blasphemy. Like, how could you possibly 
place your faith in Jesus. On her shame culture, the mom said to her, my dying wish is that you would speak to this pastor. And so she got on the phone with the pastor. They talked for two hours. The pastor was unable to convince her to place her faith in Christ. And uh, she said she was going to take her life still. The pastor said, will you just give Jesus one week? You've followed Allah all of your life, and look at where it's gotten you. You're empty. Uh, you're mad at God because of your mom having MS, and you're about to kill yourself. Will you give Jesus one week to do something? If he doesn't do anything in a week, then you can take your life. And she goes, then I'll do it with a gun. And they got off the phone at 5 o'clock in the morning after they went to bed that night. She heard her mom scream, and she thought that the MS had gotten to her lungs, and so she ran out to see, and mom was walking through the house without any problem. And so they rushed her to the hospital, and they did blood tests and MRI, and there was no sign of any MS in her body. And then the, the hospital in this Middle Eastern country said, who did you pray to? And she said, Jesus. And she said, right there, five people came to Christ. And so a week later, yeah, you can give the Lord a hand for that too. People come to Christ. A week later, this young girl calls the pastor back and says, hey, I'm the girl that was going to embarrass Jesus. Jesus has embarrassed me. And uh, she said, I've come to Christ. Uh, you know that my mom trusted Christ on the phone with you last week, and there's five other new believers here, but we don't know what to do. And so the pastor uh, started talking with her. She ended up uh, starting a church in her country, the largest church in her country at the time. Uh, when the guy on the tech team, the production team, had gone over there, the pastor said, hey, God's working in this country where we're broadcasting. Let's go over there. You're the camera guy. Why don't you come with me? And so they went, and he saw her, and he said, when I saw her, the moment I saw her, God said, that is your wife. And he said, I thought to myself, um, she doesn't speak English, and I don't even know what she speaks. Like, how is that going to work? So he went to his pastor. He was going to his godly leadership, and he said, God's doing something spiritual here. The pastor, having wisdom, said, uh, why don't we wait six months and see, like, if God keeps saying this? He said, over the next six months, God told him that three times total. And so he went to her. It seemed kind of odd. He said, I went to her, and I said, uh, God's told me that you're supposed to be my wife. Uh, so will you marry me? And she said, yes. <laughs> And she said, God told me, you're supposed to be my husband. And then knowing her culture, she said, are there any conditions on the marriage? And he said, yes, we leave this country and we never come back. And she agreed. And they got married and they moved to the West. And he was doing a production job, making $200,000 a year and had a big house, nice house, bought her a nice car. And about two months in, she said, I can't stay here. I'm depressed. And he said, why? What's wrong? You've got a nice car. You can go to the mall. You can go to the market. You, like, you're, light, you're free. Like, why are you depressed? And she said, the Western church is under a lullaby, and I'm falling asleep. And every time I try to wake up, the lullaby gets faster. What do you think? Is she right? I think it's interesting what Jesus says to the church in Sardis. It sounds a lot like America to me. In Revelation chapter 3, uh, the second part of verse 1, he says, and you were dead, or it says, um, and you, I know your works, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And then the command in verse 2, wake up. I think the Western church has fallen asleep. And I think we need to wake up. And today as part of that, I've titled today's message, Awakened to Grace. Part of our waking up is waking up to God's grace in our lives. And that's what we're going to look at in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to go verses 1 through 9 today as we pick up from where we left off last week. And if you haven't been with us in this series, what we've been doing is we've been going verse by verse to this book called Ephesians. This book was a letter that was actually written by a guy who at one time was a door-to-door terrorist. 
And then God radically changed his life. He was arresting Christians. He thought they were against God. He was throwing them in jail. And now God had radically changed him, so he was starting churches. And then he went to this one town called Ephesus, and in this town they were really rich. And um, in Ephesus they were super educated. Their temptations were to worship sex and money and government leaders. Sounds really weird, doesn't it? Like we can't identify so long ago. I just don't even know. But what happened is God radically changed their lives and it changed the community around them. The way that we say it at our church all the time is spiritual transformation leads to gospel saturation. That's what happened in Ephesus. And in, in Ephesians chapter 1, we've seen the heights of heaven, that God's changed our identity. He's taken you from being a sinner to being a saint, set you apart to be holy positionally before God. When He sees you, He doesn't see sin. He sees blamelessness. He sees His son or daughter. You've been adopted by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen? And we've seen all His lavished grace on us. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us an inheritance. Last week we talked about Paul prayed, open their eyes so they can see it, so they'll experience this, so they'll see their hope, their riches, their inheritance. And he's saying all these grandiose things. And then you get to chapter 2, and you've got to remember, chapters and verses weren't there in the original. That's for us to find stuff. That was put in later to make it convenient. You're just reading along, and you're going, they pray that they know, they know the power, the riches, the hope, the inheritance. And then it says this, look, and, so it's connected to what we just read, but like a record scratch, it gets dark. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, so this is all of our story, this isn't just those people you disagree with, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This passage is outlined. I've only read you the first three verses. We're going to go through verse 9. Two sections. There's only going to be two points today. The way it's outlined is kind of like a before and after picture. Have you ever seen that when they're trying to sell something like a wax product on some paint on a car, or you watch HGTV, the beginning of the house, the end of the house, or like a diet commercial? You ever see the diet commercials? And they have those people pose for pictures, and they're like 150 pounds overweight. And I think they tell them, make the saddest face you can make. You know, they're taking the picture, and then they take another picture, and it's like super cheese, and they're tan and ripped, and they lost 150 pounds, like before, after. That's how this passage is laid out. This is what you were without grace. This is what grace has done in your life. Without grace, you were dead. So that's our main point for the first section. Without grace, you were dead. You you were dead without grace. And it says it in the passage. And so I want you to know that this passage, as we walk through it, it gets really dark before it gets bright. It gets really depressing before it gets encouraging. It gets really low before it gets glorious. But we see that in the Bible, don't we? Like you think about it, oftentimes there's darkness before light. In the beginning when God created, He said, let there be light. Before that, earth was formless and void. It was darkness. Think about I preached on Easter on Lazarus. Lazarus was in the tomb for four days, and we joke about he stinketh and what it was like for his sisters when he came out and all that stuff. But four days? The dark tomb? Before he came out, and there was light. Think about Jesus. When he dies on the cross, it says, and darkness covered the earth before the resurrection. And many of you, you think about your own story. Many of you, when you think through your story, your greatest victories were preceded by your greatest difficulties. And so what happens in this passage is it gets real dark before the lights get turned on. And so it's bad, and it keeps getting worse. Just so you know, you're probably not going to tweet this to your friend. Someone's probably not coming to you and go, I need a word of encouragement. Let me tell you about what my pastor said from verses 1 through 3, because it's about to get dark. Watch this. And you were dead. Okay, 
So think about that. You were alive. You were living. You had a job. You were walking. Before God's grace invaded your life, and I know everybody here has a different story, but everybody's story has overlaps if you're a follower of Christ. Where grace invaded at some point and transformed you. And so you might be stuck in verses 1 through 3 as I'm talking to you today. Some of this won't make sense. But if you're a follower of Christ, you were living your life. And I don't know if you were 5 years old, 10 years old, 50 years old, but you were doing things, playing, eating, having a job, in relationships. But it says here that you were, you were like the walking dead. And it's not that you had some sixth sense where you look around and you go, I see dead people. But as you look at your past, you do see somebody who was spiritually cut off from God. You were physically alive, spiritually dead. Jesus talks about this when he has a guy that he's walking along and he calls to follow him. It's Matthew chapter 8. A guy says to him, I'll follow you, but first let me go bury my father. His father's not even dead. And so what he's saying is, I'm going to follow you someday. I'll be ready at some point. And so many of you have met people like this, right? Like, I'm going to party and do my thing, and then I'm going to follow Jesus more. When I get married or once I retire or whatever, like, I'm going to do my thing, but someday I'm going to turn my life over to Jesus, and they, that's not how it works. And Jesus knows that. You know what Jesus says to the guy? Let the dead bury the dead. Well, wait a minute. He didn't mean physically dead people. He meant let the spirit, spiritually dead people, people that are just physically alive can handle funerals. You come follow me. The guy wasn't ready to follow him. He was confronting him with that. But what he shows us is it's possible to be physically alive and spiritually dead. But it gets worse. Look at this. We're not just dead. It says dead in trespasses and sins. A couple things to notice there. Paul uses two words, different Greek words, by the way, to say the same thing. Why does he say it two times? He's emphasizing it. Notice they're plural. It's not you messed up one time. You've got your trespasses and your sins. It's a repeated behavior, but two times to talk about the same thing. What are these two different words here? Well, they mean different things, trespasses and sins. And so trespasses is a misstep. You go somewhere you weren't meant to go. The Bible says it like this in Proverbs. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. In other words, you're doing what you think you should do. You might even think you're following God, like Paul did at one time in his life, but you're actually walking away from God. That's trespasses. Sins is the Greek word hamartia. Hamartia means to miss the mark. To try to help teach you this point today, I've got a friend who's going to help me out here, and uh, I brought a weapon, just heads up for those of you in the front row. It's not a real crossbow because of insurance reasons, but <clears throat> I did bring a gun today, and so you awake? There we go. Got a couple of them back there. Heads up. No real injuries could happen. I don't think. I've shot my kids at close range, so we use this to start Nerf Wars. So what's happened for some of you if you've heard the word hamartia defined before, either you got this picture or maybe a pastor or a youth pastor or somebody gave you uh, an idea that it's missed the mark means like you're, you're shooting at the target and see there's got five targets up here. Just that middle one's the one that I would be trying to hit and you're shooting at the target and you miss. And we think, well, that's missed the mark. No, 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 no. You don't, you don't understand hamartia yet. Because you could say fall short and I could shoot, you know, kind of a limp one towards the thing. There we go. I didn't really get there. No, that's not it. Because remember, put this in context of what we've talked about in this book. Remember how last week we said you can be spiritually blind, you can see but not see? Uh, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 13, Jesus says it like this, though having eyes they do not see, though having ears they do not hear. And so to give you a better picture of this, set this down for a second, I'd have to be blindfolded, and so we will 
blindfold myself. I'll make sure I still know where this gun is before I put this on here. I'd have to blindfold myself so that I can't see, and I actually I won't cheat. I'll actually put it on so I can't see. And then you've got to remember, too, what God's standard is. It's not that I, if I just shoot enough shots at some point by random chance I hit the bullseye. God says that the standard is holiness. That means every decision that I make, every shot that I take, if we're going into the analogy, needs to hit the bullseye every time. Because the Bible also says if you break the law in one way, you've broken the whole thing. So every shot that I take, then has to, but wait, it gets worse. Remember, I can't be facing the target and give you an accurate picture of this illustration because I'm going my own way. If I'm dead in my trespasses and sins, I can't even be facing the target because I'm walking away from God. Oh, but hold on, it gets worse. I'm dead. What do dead people do? Exactly. I can't even take a shot. I can't even do it. So, to say that it's just missing the target is, is a misleading definition of how bad of a state that we're actually in. We're dead in our trespasses. We're going the wrong way. We're blind in our sin, and we can't even make a decision of faith. I said a statement two weeks ago in the sermon. Some of you didn't like. You talked about it in your small group. I, it's cool if we disagree. That's fine. It sharpens all of our thinking. But some of you were bothered when I said that if you're not a Christian, you, every decision you make is a sin. And some of you thought, well, wait a minute, one time my car was broken down, and some guy stopped me, and he was a rut, he was not a Christian, but he changed my tire, so that wasn't a sin. Or somebody fed a homeless person, or somebody, there's philanthropic things that are ending tragedies in the world that are not Christian. Let me give you a verse to chew on. It's Romans chapter 14, verse 23. It says, apart from faith, it's sin. So if you have no faith in God, and you're walking away from God, and you're dead to God, it's all sin. No matter how good it looks to us, you're not even facing the target to take a shot. You can't do anything by faith, because you don't have faith. So, it's bad. We're dead, and our trespasses and sins. Verse 1, it gets worse. Look at how bad this passage gets. It says that we were walking and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We're going to talk about walking more in Ephesians when we get to chapter 4, but it's a way to express a, a way of life. This is where you, the direction of your life is headed. You were walking. You once followed the course of this world. So we're following three different things if you walk back through the passage. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, not just our people that we don't like, our people that we go, they're going to hell, we all… We're sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in passions of our flesh. So, do you see the three things there? We're following the world, we're following the devil, and we're following ourselves. And it's all leading us away from God. And so, you think about the world. It's like a, a mass peer pressure system that's out there. Like, you thought peer pressure was just in middle school about the clothes you wore and the songs you listened to, and it's like everybody's, I'm going to be different, and we're all going to dress the same, being different. Like, it's like this peer pressure thing that happens in life. Like, my kids this week at their school was Spirit Week, and they had one day where they had to dress like 80s and 90s clothes, and so they were all going into my closet. <laughs> and these weren't clothes I had from the 80s and 90s. I was offended. I'm like, I wore that last week, and they're like grabbing clothes and giggling as they come out of the closet. And so, if you remember back, those of you who are around the 80s and 90s, remember guys wore like all these neon colored clothes, the collar be popped up, and 
Zeke have a reachy pants all tight at the bottom, baggy, hammer, can't touch this, you know, pants going on. And ladies, don't be laughing. I heard some lady voices laughing. Y'all had haircuts that were like a fire hazard, all right? <laughs> the hairspray going. And, and why would we do that crazy stuff? Because everybody else was doing it. But peer pressure is not just fashion and fads. Peer pressure can be for values. And the world system has a value system that takes you away from God. The way that we're warned about that as followers of Christ is in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. It says, do not be conformed to the ways of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, get to know God, get to know His truth in such a way that when those values conflict, it's not about how you dress. It's your way of thinking. Does it take you toward or away from God? And saying, we follow the ways of the world. We're following the world system, and that's like a river you're getting in, and it's taking you away from God. But not only that, it's the devil. I say, where's the devil? Where was that at in the passage? Well, go back, verse 2. So the second thing following, following the prince of the power of the air. That's a way to talk about Satan, I'm talking about the devil. Now, most of you, if you're honest, if I said to you, like, look back at your past, and you're like, all right, I can see spiritual deadness. I was cut off from God. I made bad decisions. I, wasn't walk, I was walking away from him, but I wasn't following the devil. You're like, I wasn't wearing black robes, going out in cemeteries and doing seances and stuff. And, like, and whatever image you have of like a Satanist or a Satan follower. But think about who he is. He's the father of lies. I was talking to a friend this week who was telling me how much they like their sin and they don't want to stop their sin. And I said, oh, you're a child of Satan. They were offended by that. I don't know why. It says it right here in the Bible. But they were offended. And they said, no, I don't love Satan. It's like they wanted God and their sin. I goes, well, every time you choose the sin, you're saying I want the sin more than I want God. Who do you think is leading that? Because it's not God. Who are you following? And, and he's the father of lies. Remember from the beginning? Genesis 3, surely you will not die. And how did death enter the world? When they did what God said, if you do this, you'll die. And then Jesus stands to the religious leaders in John chapter 8. They think they're followers of God. And he says, your, fa your father's not Abraham. Your, fa your children are the devil. They were offended too. It's crazy. People don't like that. But when you're listening to lies and those lies are leading your life and it's leading you away from God, then who do you think you're following? And, and you think about it, we could put this in context and apply it to every person here. That would be counseling, so we're not going to do that. This is preaching. But if we, if we took and said, what's your sin? Like, what's your vice? And it might be jealousy. It might be anger. It might be lust. It could be greed. It could be all these different things. But if you say, you'd say, well, what happens with that? It dethrones God, so you become separated from God. And then what happens when you're alone? You're isolated and you hear more lies. And then what happens? Destruction. Well, Satan's given us a plan. It's really clear in the Bible. And he hasn't changed it. Throughout all the centuries, all the millennia, he has not changed his plan. Steal, kill, destroy. John chapter 10, verse 10. And so I was thinking this week about one, uh, because I was talking to one friend about their struggles, and it's one that's popular in the church, but we don't talk about very much. People-pleasing. Think about what happens with a people-pleaser. People-pleaser decides that other people's opinions is the most important thing in their life, so they've dethroned Jesus, just to be clear. This is now what's Lord, or we'll say controls their life, depending on if you want to use Bible language, therapeutic language, whatever language you want to use, what's controlling their life is the opinions of other people. So God's dethroned, separate. And then when they get alone, do you know what they do? They start thinking about what other people are thinking about them. But do you know what other people are usually thinking about them? They're not. But they start thinking, well, these people are thinking this about me, and it's lies. So there's isolation. And what does that lead to? Destruction. Separation, isolation, destruction. Steal, kill, destroy. 
We've all followed Satan. We just have been blind to it because we're following the ways of the world. And we're following what we wanted to do. We're doing what we want, the Scripture says. You can't say the devil made me do this. Look at what it says, the next part. The spirit that's now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We are our own worst enemy sometimes. Us against us. James says it like this, James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But each person, each, every, all, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. This is bad. We're dead, dead in trespasses and sins, following the world, following the devil, following our own flesh. But guess what? It gets worse. Look at verse 3. Do you see verse 3? Verse 3 says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, so we're not only sinners by behavior, we're sinners by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Wrath. Don't nobody want to talk about wrath? Let's talk about grace. Let's talk about love. Let's talk about joy. Let's talk about patience. Let's talk about kindness. Let's talk about mercy. But we don't want to talk about wrath. Here's the problem with that. If you don't understand wrath, you cannot understand grace. You cannot understand mercy. You cannot understand love, patience. You can't understand those things, the mercy of God, if you don't understand wrath. But we want to talk about wrath like it's just this uh, irrational violence. We've got to think about this. You make grace cheap if you don't understand wrath. Can you imagine if there was a married couple and one of them cheated on the other one and the person was like, that's cool, grace. That's cheap grace. But we treat God like that. Oh, I sin, but God's gracious. We're cool. Everything's good. No, God gets mad. See, if there's not anger, there's not love. A third century theologian actually said that exact thing. And I don't know how to say the guy's name. We'll put it up on the screen. Uh, but he sounds like he should be in 300 to me. Lacadonisius, yes. But anyway, uh, he who does not get angry doesn't care. Because the opposite of anger would be apathy. You don't care. His anger, you could say his wrath is a demonstration of his deep love for you. But some people, when we talk about wrath, uh, they talk about like God was angry in the Old Testament, and that's why Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, there's sexual sin and fire from, literally fire from heaven, wipes them out. Or the flood, he looked and saw everybody was wicked, and he wipes the earth out with the flood, and you're like, God was really mad in the Old Testament. But then Jesus came, and Jesus is cool. So everything got cool. <laughs> I heard a pastor one time, I can't remember who it was, but he was just reading New Testament verses on wrath. And so I want to share a couple with you. Uh, it got me thinking about, wow, it's, just, it's all over the New Testament. We just don't pay attention. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. If you read Romans chapter 1, it's interesting. Uh, he's talking to people that are living by lies and they're doing what their flesh desires according to what the world says is okay. And then God calls it His wrath. And you know what His wrath is? It's not lightning. It's not fire from heaven. He says, you want life apart from me? You can have it, but you will not experience satisfaction. How many people do we know of that? We have friends living in wrath. Some of you living in wrath all the time. That's Romans chapter 1. Uh, there's more. Luke chapter 3 and verse 7. This is Jesus speaking, by the way. This is New Testament. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. 
New Testament, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Romans chapter 2 and verse 5, Paul writes that book too. He says this, but because of your, hand, your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans is in the New Testament. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 7, and I looked and behold, a pale horse and its rider's name was Death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth, 25% of the world, to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and, and by wild beasts of the earth. Wait, that sounds like wrath. 25% of the world dying because of disease and famine and war. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6, exact same words that are used in Ephesians 2, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, which is what we were called in our passage we're looking at today, the sons of disobedience. I'm thinking this week about this, and 2 Timothy chapter 3 came to my mind. Let me read it to you, and you can decide if you think we're living in the last days, because I think we are. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with pride, conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness. Wait a minute. You're talking about the same people? Lovers of money, proud, slanderous, and they have the appearance. What culture could they possibly have the appearance of godliness in? But it says, but lacking its power, avoid those people. Do you know what he says a few verses later? A time is coming, I think it's now, when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Tell me what I want to hear. And will turn away from listening to the truth. Turn away from what? God. And wander into myths. Some of them thinking they're still following God. This is bad. But it gets good. There's two words in verse 4. If you've got your Bible, you can look at it. I'm not going to tell you what they are yet. Two words that change everything. And when you see them all throughout the Bible, there's constantly a change. There's a reversal. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are following the world. You're following Satan. You're following your own flesh. You were a child of wrath by nature and behavior. But God. Those are the two words. Those two words change everything. You see it throughout the Bible. You see it in the story in Genesis. There's a guy, his life, he's proud, and he reaps what he sows. His name's Joseph. He's the first human that's human trafficked in the Bible. He gets betrayed. He gets beaten. He gets thrown in jail because he does the right thing. And then he thinks he's going to get out, and he gets forsaken. But then one day he's standing there, and he realizes what it was all for. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 20, he says to his brothers who sold him into human trafficking, you meant to harm me, but God. God used it. Paul, he gets beaten, shipwrecked, all kinds of stuff. He's writing to the Corinthians, and he says to them, I want you to know the suffering I had in Macedonia, but God. God did it for a reason. Peter, when he's preaching on the day of Pentecost, he says, you killed God, but God raised him from the dead. Here in this passage, you are dead, but God made you alive by grace. You are dead without God's grace. First point. Second point. But God made you alive by His grace. Look at what it says in the passage. Verses 4. We'll read verses uh, 4 through 7. 
but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's verse 5, verse 6. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Think about that. If you were with us last week, at the end of chapter 1, we were talking about God's power, His resurrection power that was required to change our lives. And we saw that Jesus, the name above every name, has power over every ruler, every authority. doesn't matter if it's a king, a president, government official, a spiritual power, Satan himself. Jesus has power over all of them, and He does it to serve the church. And where is He seated? Above all that. And where are we seated? It just said, with Him. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Got to know about the wrath, and then you can understand this grace. Talked about grace multiple times through this passage. You know what God's just done? He just turned the lights on. It got dark. We just turned the lights on. It was heavy. It just got glorious. His grace. If you got a Bible, uh, I encourage you to grab it. We're going to kind of do Bible study here for a second and just go through it, and I want you to see the intentional contrasts that are happening here. Verses 1 through 3, we were dead in trespasses and sins and made alive. Walking according to the course of this world, knowing we walk with Christ. Following Satan, the father of lies, the ruler of the world system. We are sons and daughters of disobedience. Remember chapter 1? We are adopted into God's family. We are sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We're following our own evil desires. Now we can walk in the path of Christ. Our hearts are so deceptive, Jeremiah 17, 9. We don't even know we're doing that. He's pointing it out here. By nature, children of wrath. But then look at what happens. It says, but God, verse 4, and then it describes who God is and His character. Verse 4, rich in mercy. Verse 4, great love. Verse 4, great grace. Remember, He lavished that on us, chapter 1, verse 8. And remember who the subject is here. Notice who the subject is here. It's not you. It's God. God's the one that's doing the activity. The verbs in this passage are what He's doing. You are the recipient of the verbs, so rejoice when you hear these verbs. This is what He's done. Loved us, verse 4. Made us alive, verse 5. Saved us, verse 5. Raised us with Christ, verse 6. Seated us with Christ, verse 6 and 7. We deserved wrath, but a God who is rich in mercy changed your life. Amen? It's like, an, I don't know if I was thinking of this because we just observed the 20th anniversary of 9-11. But this year, I felt like I was like obsessed with one part of 9-11. I don't know if that, like over the years, there's always like something else that stands out. And for me this year, it was those people that jumped, you know, 70 stories out of those buildings. So I started reading about it. I remember when I was watching it on TV, I remember watching TV and thinking, is that debris? Wait, those are people. I don't know if you remember, but there were a couple magazines, some popular ones that put pictures. Uh, there was a famous picture called The Falling Man. And and they got in trouble. Like, people were upset about the fact that they put, this is somebody's death. Like, you can't put this in a picture. And I just kept thinking this year, how bad was it inside that it was better for them? They knew they were going to die. And then as I read, I was like, some might have fallen, some did jump, people were holding hands, people individually, like, how do they do this? And I started reading, what was it like inside? I read about the temperatures and jet fuel, and I thought about the fumes and not having oxygen because the fire's consuming all the oxygen and seeing your coworkers and all of that. And, and then I thought, what if? What if you knew it was going to happen? Someone wrote you a letter, gave you a heads up that 9-11 was going to take place. 
and you went that day, and people are just living their lives, right? Like they're deleting their emails, and they're making their weekend plans, and they're talking about their sports teams, and, and they're planning vacations, and hoping they're getting promotions, and all that's happening, and you're going, no, 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 don't go in today. Don't turn. Turn from this. Go a different direction, because wrath's coming. And some people would think you were nuts, and they keep doing what seemed right to them. And some people would turn, and those people would receive mercy. That's what you've received. Because you were blind. You were dead. You had no ability even to respond to God. But God did something in your life that drew you to Him. That's His mercy in your life. And He does that by grace. Did you notice how many times grace was mentioned in this passage? Do you know what grace is? Look at what it says. When it's, if I were just saying it quickly and we weren't teaching on grace, I might give you a definition like this, an acrostic, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. Or I might just throw it in, like if we're talking about a story and I don't have time to get into it all, I'm going to go, it's when you get undeserved favor, undeserved blessing. When God gives you something in your life, you didn't earn it, you didn't do anything for it. In fact, you might be the opposite of deserving it, and He's giving it to you anyways. That's grace. And so if I just tell you that right now, most of you, if out in the lobby, were like, hey, we've got uh, free Chick-fil-A on Sunday. It's the Lord's chicken on Sunday. Crazy, right? And, uh, but you just got to answer a question, what is grace? Many of you could write back, God's riches at Christ's expense, or getting something you don't deserve. But here's my real question for you. Do you know grace? Have you really experienced grace? And here's what it is to experience grace. It's to know what it is to be fully known, nothing to hide, and then realize you're still fully loved. It's like you see in the Bible, do you see in the Bible sometimes when you see people's sin and how they respond in their sin? I was reading this morning in Genesis 2 and 3 with Adam and Eve, and uh, if you remember the creation story, God creates man, He names all the animals, there's rhinoceroses and jeep and horses and all kinds of stuff. There's a giraffe. Think about giraffe. Like if you saw they'd be like, why does he have such a long, why does he got to eat from the top? Maybe it's for the rest of us. I don't know. He names all of them. Then God makes a woman, and Adam's like, Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you, God. Paraphrase. But that's basically what happens there in the, the passage. And, and then it says they were naked and felt no shame. Interesting. Why does that put in there? And then what you see happens is that the deceiver comes. Surely you won't die. Eve believes the deception. Adam's standing passively right there. Doesn't step in. Doesn't intervene. Adam's the one that was given the command. They eat of the fruit. And then it says they hid themselves. I think from Adam's perspective, like, why did he, why are you hiding, Adam? What, you were naked? It's, I mean, you ate an apple. I didn't, you didn't gain that much weight, all right? It's not like you were looking, it's not like you're like, I don't want my wife to see me like this. There's only two people, by the way. And so it doesn't matter, like, she's only seen one guy. You're the best looking dude she's ever seen. Apple, no apple. Who are you hiding from? I promise you the giraffe doesn't care. He's eating leaves. He's like, naked, not naked, whatever. I'm just eating leaves. Like, what giraffe? Who's he hiding from? God. Why? shame. In the story, if you keep reading Genesis 2 and 3, you'll see God's judgment. He's just. And you'll see His uh, wrath. He brings a curse. And also His grace. He covers them up. And then He tells them there's a seed that's coming, Genesis 3.15. The seed is Jesus. In the New Testament, we see Jesus come in contact with people that are living in shame. Uh, and John chapter 4 is a great example of this. It's a story where there's a woman who's coming to a well in the middle of the day. There's only one reason to go to the well in the middle of the day is if you want to avoid people. It's the hottest time of the day, and no one went there for social hour at that time. So she's going because she's trying to avoid people. She comes into contact with Jesus. She debates with them about whether it's contemporary worship or traditional worship. It's the same thing. We're talking about mountains, like just arguing about it. Jesus answers the questions, and he says, go tell your husband. She goes, I don't have a husband. He says, that's right. You've had five. The guy you're with now, not your husband. She doesn't run off in shame. He tells her that he's the Savior of the world. In other words, I came to forgive your sins. 
Instead, she runs to the town and tells her story to the town. Fully known, fully loved. Have you experienced that kind of grace? That's what Paul's talking about in this passage. When he says in verse 5, and he says again in verses 8 and 9, and he mentions it again going through here, it's we're saved by grace. It's by grace you have been saved. The most famous verses in this passage are verses 8 and 9. In verses 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is the means. This is the how salvation happens. It's by God's grace through faith. But you don't even, faith isn't even a work. You wouldn't even have faith. You're spiritually dead. God had to give you the gift. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Faith is not even of you. God gave you the gift of faith, not a result of works, or else you could be proud, or else no one could boast is the language of the Bible. But he shatters your pride, and we usually focus on that. I've preached those two verses before. If you've never memorized any verses in the Bible, start with those two. That's a great place. It's a summary of the gospel. But you know what they don't tell you? Why? Why grace? And so today, I'm not going to focus on verse 8 and 9, but look at verse 7 for a second. Let's just today just talk about verse 7. Verse 7 tells the why. Why so much grace? Why would you give it? I get that it's by grace, through faith, not of works, but why, verse 7, so that in the coming ages, that's forever, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. Kindness is love and action toward us in Christ Jesus. He's putting his glory on display through his grace, and he's going to do it for all eternity, so get used to it. And how does he do that? His love and action, his changing our lives, his taking us from death to life. I don't know what you do for encouragement. One of the places I'll go sometimes is there's a website called I Am Second, and what you'll see there are grace stories, people's lives who've been transformed by Jesus. I was watching this week, I saw a guy, Christian Hasoy was his name. Um, some of you are skaters or were, were skateboarders at one time in your life, and so you might know that name. I had somebody come to me in the lobby at their first service and go, I had his board when I was in college or whatever. And uh, if you haven't heard that name, he was a, a famous skater in the mid uh, to late 90s. And uh, he was talking about getting into skateboarding. He said when he was about seven or eight years old, he started skating. And he said people started telling him how good he was at it. And at that age, when people tell you you're good at something, you kind of become that thing. But he said the people that he was hanging out with, he started making some bad decisions. He said when he was um, 10 years old, he started smoking weed. When he was 12 years old, he started doing acid. When he was 14 years old, he started experimenting with cocaine. And he said, but I had it all. I was famous. I had money. I had girls. I'd go to the club, I'd always be VIP status, always the youngest person in the club, but I was always empty. And he put his hands, his face in his hands, and he said, I'm dying inside. And the picture he gave was, he was it's like a bucket that has holes in it, that every time I fill it up, it's still empty afterwards. And so I'd do these things, and he enjoyed them in the moment, but then it was still this emptiness, like Romans chapter 1, wrath he's experiencing. And he says, then my life changed. I met Crystal Meth. And he said from 1995 to 2000, he did crystal meth every day, all day. He said, at the time, I thought I was trying to have a good time. When I look back on it, I see I was destroying myself. But one day, I got off an airplane, and there were two police officers waiting for me, and they said, we believe that you have narcotics on you. They arrested him, took him to jail. While he was in jail, he decided to call his girlfriend, Jennifer, and he said, babe, I'm looking at 10 years. He's like a famous skater, right? I'm looking at 10 years. She said, you've got to trust God. He's like, God, I'm not dying. I'm in jail. Like, God can't help me. When I die, maybe God can help me. God can't help me right now. He goes, I need a lawyer or bail. She said, you need to go read the Bible. And so they got off the phone. She didn't bail him out. Didn't give him a lawyer. So he had to go get a Bible. He said, I opened it up to Genesis. He goes, that was like Star Trek movie. So I went to the back of the book. Maybe that'll be easier. Have you read the back of the book? 
not easier. So he's like, I don't know who's John. I don't know who this John guy is. So he's going, Psalms. What's a Psalm? Proverbs. He gets to Kings and he reads First and Second Kings. And in Second Kings, David tells his son, "Love God, follow Him. God will bless you." And he said, "The scales fell off my eyes." He started to devour the truth. Two weeks later, he's on the phone with his girlfriend. Her uncle is a pastor, and the uncle gets on the phone and says, do you want to give your life to Christ? He said, I didn't even know all of what that meant at the time, but I gave my life to Christ, and then it all melted away. He said, I was free. And he said, I was walking around, people thought I'd lose my mind because I'd be like, I'm free. And they're like, there's bars for Christian. Like, what are you talking about? You're in prison. He goes, I had to go to jail to get free from my bondage. And then he goes on, and he shares a story, and you can go watch it, but he says, and the line that got me was, I've experienced every kind of love this world has to offer, and there's nothing like God's love fully known, fully loved. Have you experienced that? Some of you here today need to place your faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you how to do that in just a second. Some of you here have fallen from grace. Come home. Some of you here, you're believing lies and wake up to the truth. It's part of your awakening to God's grace. Wrath is coming. One of the biggest deceptions our world has is there's going to be no judgment day. Wrath's coming. Read your New Testament. I only give you a, a sampling of verses. But when you get them, especially if you're a follower of Christ, you realize grace, love, mercy, wake up. Father, we come before you right now, and I want to pray first of all for those who don't know you. We've talked about people coming to know you in this message. God, would you have someone come to know you right now? Online, in this room, your call, God. If you want to save 100, you want to save one, would you save somebody? And if that's you, if you right now, as I'm praying, God's going, he's praying about you. Would you place your faith in Christ? And, and the way you do that is what verses 8 and 9 said. It's by grace. God's opening. The very fact you're considering this means God's working in your life. It's by God's grace. He's given you a gift you don't deserve to then place your faith in Him through faith. We're saved by grace, through faith, not of your works. Do you place your faith not in who you are or cleaning up your act or being a good person, but what Jesus did for you on the cross when He died and He rose from the dead and He's offering you forgiveness and you can turn to Him, but you've got to put your trust in Him. And if you want to put your trust in Him right now, will you just pray this? The words aren't magic. It's giving your heart to Him. Father, I acknowledge my sin. When I read this passage, I think verses 1 through 3 describe me, not the rest. And I want to be made alive. I want to know you. And will you pray to receive Jesus? If you're watching online and that's you, would you write Jesus in the comments and the pastor will follow up with you? If you're in this room and you just pray to trust Jesus, in a moment when I'm done, we're going to baptize some people, but I want you to go to my right, your left. I'll meet you over there. I want to talk to you about your relationship with Jesus. And Father, I pray for those in here that need to experience your grace, fully known and fully loved. God, would you do a work in their hearts? And let me tell you, we're going to do baptism in a moment, but if you want to come up here to the front and just kneel down and pray, no one will talk to you. We'll just you and the Lord, have that alone time with Him at the altar. Lay sins down at the altar. Talk to Him. Start believing truth and not lies. Father, I pray for those who need to be washed with your grace. Show them your love. Show them it's not that they're going to start acting better. Clean it up. Do a different thing. Just that they would hand you their heart and you would heal it, and you would soothe it. Remove shame. There are people hiding in shame in this room, and they do not know freedom. Would you bring freedom? I pray they don't have to go to jail to experience it, but do whatever you have to do. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.